What's up, guys? Episode 11 of the Guru Presadio podcast. Um, episode for today, I, got, I have Jorge Trevino from the Trevino Law Firm joining us today. Topic of choice that uh, that we that we chose for uh, this episode is uh, immigration policy amidst a global pandemic. Um, Jorge, I'll let you I'll let you introduce yourself, your firm, and kind of what you do and what you've been doing uh, since you've been in practice. Sure. Uh... I'm Jorge Trevino. I have a small immigration law firm in South Texas. I have an office in San Antonio is my main office, and I have an office in Laredo. Uh, I went to law school in Michigan. I uh, did some uh, clinics where I did asylum. Uh, I handled I handled some practical cases, um, and I fell in love with the area of practice and the direct help you have towards a client. Uh, after law school, I moved to Chicago, and I worked at two law firms there before relocating back to Texas. Um, yeah, I love helping people that come from where I come from. My family, my both my parents were immigrants, and uh, it's uh, it it hits home, and that's why I chose to do it. Do you always aspire to be in law when you sit when you uh, when you were growing up, or what what was what was it that attracted you to want to be a lawyer? Both my parents are lawyers. Uh, my dad, is, my dad went to law school in Houston. My mom was the first Mexican-born woman to go to Texas law school. Um, so I, it, it's always, it's always been there. Um, I originally wanted to be a sports agent, so I figured I majored in marketing and went to law school so I can learn contracts. Um, but I took one immigration case in in law school and changed that path for me. Right on, right on. Um, how, how big is your practice? Is it just you as a sole attorney or do you have other attorneys that are with you? Uh, it's been, it, there's another attorney. Her name is Melanie Lita. She's been with me since she interned with me and then I hired her out of law school. Uh, I've had different lawyers with me throughout the years, uh, but right now it's just me and Melanie and I have a staff of about eight. Good deal. Good deal. Uh, COVID-19 changed, changed a lot of what you guys are doing now. It has. Um, everything has gone te- uh, telephonic uh, and remote, so we don't necessarily have to go to courts if if we don't if we choose not to. We can uh, judges accept uh, telephonic appearances and whatnot, and we do jail visits now through telephone or video. Um, so it it it, it, does, it has it has changed a lot and took a while to get to get us where we're at now. Right on. So you, you've been in practice, of course. How, how many years now? I passed the bar in uh, November 2007, so since November 2007. So uh, a big topic in, in, in our uh, podcast today is the idea of how immigration policy has really changed in the past four years of the Trump administration. But if you could paint us a picture, because I know there's a lot of people that have misconception about the Obama era and then the Trump era of of immigration policy, paint us a picture of what it looked like before Trump came into office in terms of immigration policy and and how that looked. Okay, oh, well, there's two aspects, two major aspects to uh, immigration. There's affirmative based applications and then removals. Removals is like deportation. Uh, I'll start with deport with removals. Um, under Obama, he had a, there was a priority to removals. People with criminal 
records would be a priority for the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement and DHS uh, to move those cases along. There was a lot of discretion at this level of court in front of the immigration judge whether the uh, trial attorneys wanted to continue with the case, whether it was worth it, whether somebody who had been here for 30 years without having any criminal history, who has eight kids that are living here, US citizens, who owns a home, who owns a business, um, they would have discretion whether to pursue deportation or not. Um, the main thing Trump has done in regards to that is he took away discretion. Everybody's a priority. Yes, and, and people who have built their home, their lives here, who pay taxes, who don't have any criminal history, um, they are priorities to removal just as much as somebody who has claimed citizenship or voted in the election or murdered somebody. That he has put everybody at the same level of removal. Um, as far as affirmative applications, the first thing he's done is increased um, every application there is, making it more difficult for somebody who doesn't necessarily have a good paying job because they don't have permission to work or an, a, like a document, an author, employment authority, um, raised the prices on that. And then um, just the processes have gotten a lot longer when I first during Obama, the uh, adjustment of status for it. So for when somebody was becoming a resident, the processing time was somewhere from three to six months. Uh, today, it's anywhere from eight to 34 months for somebody to become a resident. Would and then once you become a resident, then it's another five years before you come, you can, you can apply for citizenship. And then right now, the time frame to become a citizen is another 20 something months. Wow. So everything is just a lot slower. And, 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 and it's almost, and he also has changed a lot of what people may have, may be applicable for or eligible for. Um, I don't know if you if you knew the USCIS was under threat that they were going to have to furlough a lot of employees because they couldn't. USCIS was going uh, was didn't have enough money, and to well, Trump he doesn't care. He doesn't care if DA, if USCIS has money to process applications because that's just getting that's getting uh, immigrants here into the United States. Right. So anything he anything he can do to use the pandemic, he used COVID as a way to stop people from coming into the country, tourists. Uh, he closed down the Department of State where people, uh, spouses of US citizens who are going through the process and waiting for their interviews in Ciudad Juarez, let's say, those are closed. You know, So he, uses, he used this um, pandemic to further his plans that he had before where to stop people from coming into the United States. Right. And in your opinion, maybe this is an opinionated thought, but in your opinion, is is it stopping more so criminals from coming in, or is the, are the policies geared towards more of hey, let's just prevent um, even just families just coming into the United States? Because I hear a lot of mixed stories out there. Um, what's your what's your take on it? I mean, what what's what's the real initiative? I think he's just he doesn't like brown people and that like people from Asia and people from African countries and people from Latin countries and he doesn't want people here as far as you you mentioned families he wants he wants to go to a merit-based immigration system not the kind of system where we that we have where someone can petition for a family member to come um, he wants a merit-based uh, and that's one of the changes he's made where someone has to prove that they would not be 
a burden to the to the government once they come in, which has always been a thing, but he's just made it more difficult. Can is a person employable? Does the person speak English? Does the person uh, is he going to ask? Can he is he insured even before having residency? Um, so this is it, this is what you mean by increased applications. Is is that that's exactly what you're what you're referencing, right? I'm referencing the uh, yeah the L, L, the uh, requirements for eligibility for these applications. Yeah. Wow, that's um, yeah, that's pretty disturbing. Um, have you heard? I mean, what what any other past uh, past administrations have said about this, or you know, do they condemn it, or is it is it something that you you're not you know too familiar with what they've said in the past? Uh, most, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, Twitter is just a uh, just a sounding off board for all previous administrations and most do not agree with the tactics. I mean, and not even, I mean, and everything he tries to do, he also does, it's it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction because he doesn't do it the correct way. The same way he tried to eliminate DACA without going through the process of, of, of making the announcement and opening it for, for comments and things like that, which is why the Supreme Court sent it back, not necessarily because he can't undo it, he's just didn't undo it the correct way because it's just a knee-jerk reaction. I want this done, and let's do it. I don't care what laws I break or, or what procedures I don't do. Right. Walk us through that do the DACA pro uh, program whenever he did that cutback or, or the initiative he took. Okay, so uh, DACA, it's a deferred action for uh, childhood arrivals. It's, uh, it's a benefit for individuals who have been in the United States uh, for a long time, that they were brought here as children under the age of 15, they graduated from high school um, or have a job or went to uh, college. Um, are a person of good moral character, meaning they don't have any criminal history or things like that, have never left the country. Uh, so it's a benefit for them. It's a, it's a work authorization. It's not a pathway to citizenship. It's not a pathway to get any sort of residency. It's just, hey, you're here, we'll give you a work permit and you can continue renewing this if you behave. Um, Trump didn't like it. Trump thinks it's a way to get people to, he always says it's a way to make them legal and get them citizenship, which it's not. Um, but he just eliminated it. He said one day, okay, we're stopping this on this day. We're not going to do any more renewals and we're not going to allow for any new applications. Um, he was sued, uh, went up to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, you do have the right to stop this if you go through the right procedures. So they overturned his uh, decision and reinstated it the way it was before. Is this what the Supreme Court did? Yes. The interesting thing is, so once it goes back to where it was before, it opens it up to uh, accept initial applications. So people who qualify for it that never applied for it before and for renewals. So the immigration board, we all immediately started applying. I sent, I think I sent out like 10 of them. Um, and tr the, USCIS, the Trump administration decides we're not going to process these regardless. We're still going to send them back. We're going to reject them. Um, and I still have like 10 pending that are going to, that I'm waiting for my rejections. Can they Obviously, legally do that? Nope. He's, nope. We're taking legal action against him. But I mean, he tries to do a lot of things he can't do legally. Yeah. Um, I hear that a lot. Was, yeah. It was taken. Uh, he, it's already gone to court. I think it was in Maryland. Uh, a district judge uh, ordered the administration and ordered USCIS to process these applications. 
And USCIS came out with a statement that this that the decision of the Supreme Court uh, goes against any reason in law, and because of that, they're not going to follow it, which I don't think has ever been done by any administration right. in the history. Who uh, do you know who originally sued them? Was it ACLU or was it another another organization? Uh, it was an organization out in California. Okay. I recently watched yeah. a documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called The Fight. It's on Amazon Prime. I have not. So it follows the ACLU, um, the ACLU out of New York. I don't know what it stands for, but they're they're primarily responsible for a lot of the movements that happen when the Trump administration yeah. takes action. They they in turn have their team of attorneys that come in, sue the administration, and then uh, of course it always gets it, because like you said, it's always illegal, right? What he does, what he implements, it's always illegal. So there's yeah. an overturn of it. But then what the tactic that they see the Trump administration doing is, okay, that got overturned. What uh, what can we change or tweak very slightly, send it back, and then get a stay on it, and then in right. turn get away with and it that, again? I, yeah, ACLU is the American Civil Liberties Union. Appreciate that. And I believe you're talking about the uh, travel ban. The travel ban was they, one. There's a, there's a few. Yeah. Yeah, ACLU has been behind, I mean, all the civil litigation we've had in the, like, um, dis, 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 mostly discrimination, discrimination. That's what, that's what they, that's what they do. Great, great organization. Yeah, they're solid. They're solid. I'm, uh, again, I watched that documentary the other day. It's very moving. Um, so, of course, you have clients throughout. Is it just San Antonio or tell us, tell us about, I mean, what's your footprint in terms of, um, your client base? Um, I have, I have clients all over the United States. I have, uh, both removal and affirmative applications, mostly here in Texas. Uh, but I have like, for instance, right now I have five that are detained in San Diego. They're Peruvians that we're trying to come in. I have a big group in Idaho that I represent. Um, I have some in Sacramento and in Oregon. San Francisco, uh, all the East Coast, New York, Carolina, and Miami, and Chicago. Um, I think that's, and in Utah. I think uh, th th that's where my clients are. Most of those are removal cases. Uh, the way that I've gotten cases, I, I don't advertise, um, but when someone comes into the United States and let's say they get detained, they'll be detained here at the border and they'll hire me. Uh, if I get them out on bond, they can go out and stay wherever they have family or wherever they're going to stay in the United States. Will have the uh, case transferred to that to, to their nearest immigration court. Um, most of this time, they want me to continue representing them because I was able to get them out on bond. So right. um, it, it's good. It's 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 a little difficult because the law is interpreted differently in every circuit. So if they move to New York, it's uh, we're in the second circuit. If they go to California, we're in the ninth circuit. Here in Texas, we're in the fifth circuit. So I have to figure out how they're interpreting certain asylum cases in each. Uh, circuit and then go th go from there sounds like a lot of work um for a team of two i mean you get you guys are you guys are busy i mean i when i went to your office last week it seemed like you guys were just swamped with work yeah we have uh and 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 you saw us on a not busy time right so during covid <laughs> uh the only cases that are going forward are cases for people who are detained the non-detained docket hasn't gone forward since march so um these are just cases for people who have recently been picked up 
So wait, what, and, how do you how do you distinguish that detained and not detained? What are the two differences so our audience understands it? Okay, so uh, detained is somebody who's in actual custody, who's in a detention center, and they're in the uh, immigration custom enforcement custody. So they uh, they have the immigration courts have jurisdiction over certain uh, centers. So for instance, here in San Antonio, the, we have like four judges that handle the dockets at Pearsall, the South Texas Detention Complex, the Rio Grande Detention Complex in Laredo, uh, the Laredo CCA Processing Center. We have Hutto. Uh, we have one by Waco that just opened up recently. Um, so uh, we have all these detention centers that are via tel are heard over via video uh like via video television right right um with the immigration court here in san antonio um so those because they're detained they are necessary to go forward because it's an expense to the government um the ones who are not detained are people who live who are not in custody and they uh drive to the actual immigration courthouse and they'll have their they'll hearing uh, because of COVID and social distancing, uh, those have been postponed, mostly because every time there's a hearing, they schedule about 40 cases at the same time. And it's a first come first serve basis, basically. Um, so there's a there's a there's a few uh, courts that have opened up, I think Honolulu, who doesn't have many cases, they've opened up today, they announced that Charlotte's opening up on, on September 14th, as well as Denver. San Antonio is one of the busiest dockets in the United States, so it has rem it, it it remains closed still. Have you ever uh, had a situation where you actually have to go to these these uh these camps? The detention centers, yeah, yeah. I go uh, I go I go every week. Um, well, I strike that I used to go every week. Uh, uh, right now, during COVID, a lot of these detention centers I, at different times go into quarantine because there's been an outbreak and they don't allow in-person visits. Um, so that makes it kind of difficult to prepare with the clients for a trial or prepare them for a bond hearing. Um, the I think ICE, ICE is Immigration Customs Enforcement. They're getting better at making them available to us via telephone or video in order to prepare for them, but it's it still makes it difficult. It's not a personal thing. A lot of these cases are asylum cases where someone is expressing fear for returning to their country, and it makes it difficult. I have a, I have one client who's his fear is based on his uh, he's bisexual. Um, so imagine preparing that in a jail, surrounded by everybody who's in that dormitory around you, and you're and he's trying to tell you about his the attacks he's had because he's bisexual. Something I'm sure he's trying to keep. He doesn't want to get out in the detention center, you know, for safety reasons. Right. Uh, so it, it just makes it, it's been, it's been difficult, but typically, yes, uh, weekly, I go to these detention centers and meet with my clients. Do they, uh, have they changed anything? I mean, do they still have kids in cages or what, what's the situation on that? Cause I know that's a big, big story on the news. It's not as big anymore as it was before. Um, but they're, they are still detaining kids, um, the separation is a lot less it, 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 if and rare if, if it's done, if it's done. I just, when you, when we started, I was on the phone. Uh, it was a client from Florida. Her brother was detained coming into the United States. They are from Nicaragua. Um, and he came in with his wife and two kids. One of the kids is actually a US citizen and they're all detained. 
Um, so they, they're all detained together. So yes, they are still detaining children, but they're not necessarily separating them from their parents. From their parents anymore. I'm assuming that right. stopped after the, um, I believe it was it the Supreme Court that overturned that? Uh, it was, it wasn't the Supreme Court. It was one, I think it was the second circuit who ordered it done. Um, I, I don't believe it went up to the, to the Supreme Court, uh, but it was, it was a federal order that they had to stop doing that. And then Trump, uh, succumb to some pressure and also he said that he's reversing that horrible decision under obama but it was trump who did it not obama what does he mean by that under obama why, why does he say it's it was under obama so it was always it, it was a, it's individuals who are coming into the united states can be charged criminally right for uh unlawful entry into the united states under the u.s criminal code um that's always been a law. So if you come into the United States and you're with a child and you're being charged criminally, the child is not going to be in an, in, a, in an adult jail. So they would separate them. That has always been a thing. Obama, under Obama, they wouldn't necessarily separate them. They would come in and they would choose not to charge them criminally, but process them to go in front of immigration and an immigration judge, and they would keep the family together. So it would be, a, let's say a father and a daughter would come in, they would move them to a family detention uh, unit or a family complex under so, th so that's always been a thing that they could separate them but they never necessarily did under trump he said everybody's going to be charged as a criminal so that's how the separation started they started charging everybody who was coming into the united states criminally and re taking the kids from them and he used that as a way to deter people that word would get back to where the countries are coming from right and it would deter people from doing it the problem was the word that was getting back is that this is happening now and it's going to get worse. So it just created these movements of people coming back in, in force even more so because it's only going to get worse. So we need to go now. Right. Right. And, and I can only imagine, I mean, I, ha I have, I have a uh, family throughout parts of Mexico and you know, things get bad there. And I've heard of what El Salvador is another, another country that, you know, is dealing with a large, large issue. But uh, at the end of it, I, don't, I just don't, I don't know if these families are going to be deterred from trying to get into the United States when there are other choices potentially dying in a country where, you know, where they're at. Absolutely. Yeah, I, absolutely not. People are not coming because uh, because they're criminals and they want to do damage here or, or, or anything like that. People are coming because they're scared for their lives. These Latin countries, the, uh, the Central American countries are just extremely dangerous everybody is being extorted everybody is being threatened everybody uh, there's no there's so much corruption in government and police that there is no protection there for them um if someone is going and i mean you can just imagine the things people go through on these treks to the united states and the risks that they take and how deadly and treacherous it could be for them what they would face if they would remain in in their country it's right. not i mean they're not coming over here in, in a bus or in a uh, plane or anything like that. Like they're marching and miles trying upon to miles trains and, and things like that. Like it's, it, it, it's insane to think that, that, that they're not coming because of absolute necessity. Right. You have, I mean, you have clients that these are conversations that you have with them day to day. Yeah. I mean, they, these are individuals that are facing these types of issues in their home country. Yes. Yes. So, uh, uh, 
especially the uh, especially the ones that are detained this the, those are the ones that since they're detained they're more active they don't uh the continuances in between each case aren't long periods of time it's maybe two weeks so we're constantly talking with those clients compared to when somebody's not detained they'll have a hearing and then they'll be continued for another eight months so it's not really all that pressing um so yeah it's it, it's a constant conversation about uh just pain and and, and heartache and and death um and it's uh it, it it's it's a difficult thing to hear over and over right um, walk us through walk us through the different uh, the different pushbacks that have happened that have made the case for fighting for these you know civil liberties for your clients. What things have happened since COVID and the Trump administration that has? I know when we met, we spoke about um, the the non detained docket being moved back um, since what was it March continuances moved to twenty twenty three. Tell us about those things and how they're how they're making it difficult to fight for your clients. Okay, so we'll start with the Trump administration. Uh, immigration, the Executive Office of Immigration Review, is an administrative court. Uh, it's not an Article Three court, so it's a court under the 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 uh, executive branch. So the president and his attorney general can dictate how law will be interpreted throughout his, his term, okay? So for instance, um, let's say there is an asylum case, and this has happened uh, many times throughout this administration. There's an asylum claim of a woman who is a victim of domestic abuse. Um, the, it, it was Sessions at the time, Jeff Sessions, pulled the case from the Board of Immigration Appeals. So a, a woman had won the case, it was appealed. Uh, the Board of Immigration Appeals, the, the appeals court was hearing it and the attorney general pulls the case and he hears it and he decides the case. And now that's how immigration judges have to interpret that law. So it's not an article three where there's an, it's under the judiciary branch where there's no, um, influence by the administration where a criminal case is an, is under the article three right so trump has used that to his benefit he's eliminated for asylum purposes let's uh let's say he has eliminated a lot of um people who would otherwise under previous administrations would have qualified for victims of domestic violence in latin american countries was a group that was protected um People who were victims from, of gang violence previously was a group that was protected. Um, he has just eliminated a lot of things that people before were banking on. The, what this what what it has created the immigration system. The immigration courts are so backlogged that someone who came in in two thousand. I was working on a case today. They've been here since 2007 and they still haven't had their trial. Wow. Um, so this case in 2000, let's say 2007, uh, we were banking on this one group that was protected that she's a member of is now not a member of. So where she qualified at one time, because this delay in the immigration court system that we have no control over just because they're so backlogged, 
now her case is stale and she doesn't have a claim anymore. So now when we go to trial in 2021, if this continues, if this is, stays as precedent, then she has been eliminated from qualifying for anything and will probably be sent back to the disaster situation that she was before. So they're de- it seems like they're definitely playing on that. They're manipulating that to get away with making I think so. I think, I, I think I, I think so. I think they're using they knew that that was a a big chunk of people uh, of, of claims. Um, and I think he is uh, like I said, I, I don't think he wants anybody to be, to be here. That is not um, that does not look like him. Right. Um, and, and I think he's doing everything possible to do that. I mean, nobody from, from European countries are coming and asking for asylum like that, you know, so though, and those people are, would be educated and would benefit from a merits-based, uh, process that he wants. Um, now, as far as COVID, the difficulties that that has brought is, is, is also a lot, um, both affirmative applications, interviews have not been uh, scheduled until recently. I think they started mid-July. Um, so we're finally starting to have some movement on that. And people, it, it's frustrating for the for our clients who have just been waiting there. And when they initially started, we told them it's gonna be 15 months by the uh, from now for you, for you to get your interview to become a resident. Uh, and now we've been tacked on another six to eight months on that. Um, so it makes it, it's frustrating for them. It's frustrating for us. Everything's just moving a lot slower. Um, the representing people is also difficult. Like I mentioned before, uh, with the outbreaks that these detention centers are having, uh, you, you really can't keep attorney client privilege, or you don't know if you're keeping attorney client privilege because you don't know if these phone calls that you're having are being recorded. You don't know who else is in the room. You don't know there's a lot of factors that are um that are unknowable while you're while you're talking with these clients which before i would go straight to the detention center we'd be sitting in a room and i'd have privacy to speak with my client and we can talk about everything and and really prepare for for a hearing right um so so that's made it difficult there was a lot of more difficulties at the beginning with learning how to do a trial over the phone without being able to see somebody um, or see your client. Um, there's, I had a, I had a trial where the government was cross-examining my client and my phone, uh, dropped the call dropped. So they finished with the cross-examination and the judge calls me back and tells me, well, we finished with cross-examination and I made a big thing about it. I said, well, I don't know what they asked. I, I have my I have my rights to object to certain questions. I don't know. I, I don't know what it was. And they said, "Well, too bad. We're going forward. And if you want to appeal on the issue, you can appeal on the issue." Jesus, um, this is this is a judge, this is a judge saying this. Yes. So the, the and I I, I think it's wrong. I think the judges. I think I think judges should try to seek justice. Yeah. Um and find the find the truth or find whatever it is that they need to make a just decision on an application where somebody is claiming that if they go back to their country they're going to be killed um but this administration has given these judges quotas they need to finish a certain amount of cases per year and if they don't they're going to be docked so a lot of these judges credit i mean 
not credit, but unfortunately are faced with these um, timeframes that if they don't, they're going to be docked and maybe, and these are, they, they could be removed from, from the bench. So it's, it, it just, it, it's difficult. So, uh, some judges don't, some judges say, I don't care. I'm going to, I'm, I'm here to do my job and that's to be a just, a, 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 a just jurist, you know, and, and figure out what's happening. Others, and particularly ones who this administration has appointed because they try to appoint people that think like they do, um, right. are just about going through the cases and getting through the numbers as quick as possible so they can finish these cases, these things. These metrics that this administration has made for these judges, unfortunately, has caused a lot of very good judges to re take early retirement or leave the bench and become practicing attorneys again because they cannot uh, abide by these restrictions, um, either ethically or practically, that this administration has given them. So that's, cur that's currently happening, where, where we're oh, seeing yeah. judges fall off. Oh, yeah. So really, really good ones. That's ridiculous. Um, public change rule. Do we go over that yet? Um, the, pu the public charge. Public charge rule. What is that? What is that yeah. exactly? So that's the one that I was I, I briefly mentioned earlier, where uh, someone needs to show in their applications for residency um, that they are not that they would not be a, a, a charge to the government, that they can be self sufficient, basically. Right. Um, and the officers can interpret what that means. Right. So um, to one officer, the self-sufficiency can be that they speak English, because if they speak English, they can probably get a job um, and they can be self-sufficient. They're not going to come in and get on food stamps or anything like that, um, which makes it difficult for people who are older. Right. So if uh, there if let's say I want to bring my dad from the from Mexico and my dad is in his 70s, well, he's not going to be self-sufficient. Right. Because he's not. He's maybe he's retired, uh, maybe he can't, he's too old to find a job. So that's going to be a negative mark against him. So he, uh, that's what the pub public charge rule is. There's a lot of different factors. They want to know what your credit score is. Even I mean, and I don't know how you even do that for people who don't have. I was going to say, do they even have a credit score if they're in uh, another country? Exactly. Some some do, and we found this out. Some do. Um, we so I'm assuming if they, they don't, then that's a mark against them if they can't verify credit. Uh, it can be. It yeah. can be. Um, we need to show that they have medical insurance. So, so again, we go back to this situation where somebody who doesn't earn much because they're cheap labor because they they're under the book they're uh, under the table workers have to go out and find health insurance, something that most Americans don't have. You know, or not most, it's not fair to say, but a lot of Americans don't. Yeah. Um, so it's just a lot of these, these uh, obstacles that one needs to come across now that just make it near impossible for people to, to do it. Right. But we're trying to figure out a way. Uh, the Trump, so the Trump administration or the USCIS uh, which is the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, the ones who process these applications. They've been sued by certain uh, in in different circuits throughout the United States. Uh, 
the do we know approximately how many times has, oh I, too many to count i would say did you say more than 100 uh, a lot yeah oh yeah yeah oh yeah um the second circuit has um enjoined or stopped the the uscis from processing i90 uh, the public charge rule um and they're they're so they're hearing that case during COVID. also um one of the circuits said in our circuit, you cannot apply this public charge rule because it's too difficult right now during this pandemic to abide by most of these things. Um, unfortunately, Texas, and I'm not sure if we take, we brought suit in the fifth circuit, but the fifth circuit is one of the most conservative circuits. I don't even know if we would bring suit here. It's worth it. So fifth I mean, circuit in the, Texas. Yeah. Texas is very, uh, the fifth circuit to, which is Texas, Louisiana, uh, very, very conservative. Right. Wow. Yeah. Um, so there's a there's an argument, right? There's an argument that when someone's seeking asylum, and, and I'll go back to the asylum question because I, I feel that this is a really, really um, a, a big issue in terms of when, when someone's fle uh, fleeing a country to seek asylum and establish themselves in the United States. I've had many conversations in the past, um, the past couple of weeks with different individuals. I even met uh, another individual. Her family migrated here uh, I think it was probably 15 years ago, um, some some part of the Middle East. And I, I I don't know if they were seeking asylum or what it was, but we had a conversation and it, it came down to a disagreement between me and the person. But nonetheless, the argument for those seeking asylum is, is getting weaker. Tell us about how that argument gets weaker um, as as this pandemic kind of makes the challenges of of presenting that argument well i think i think it depends on what the basis for asylum is um i mean we talked about some examples how an argument gets weaker over time uh just the longevity of somebody being here so let's say i let's say i'm a mexican and i come to the united states because uh, certain individuals are after me for whatever reason. And it takes five years for my case to come for me to, for me to have my, my day in court, right. so to say. Um, those five years, a lot of things could have happened. Those people may be, do they still know about me? Do they even care about me anymore? And I need to go back in time and, and, you're presenting you're presenting a case right now with evidence that you had from back five years ago and and try to show that this fear this this uh fear of persecution still exists today so i i think time is is something that makes asylum claims get weaker um depending on the administration i the depending on on the claim the the reason why you're being attacked um is also could also make it weaker so asylum isn't just you come in and I'm scared in my country that they're going to kill me. It's super violent. It's super dangerous. I'm, I'm, I'm scared. That's not, that's not what asylum is. To, to qualify for asylum is very specific. You need to fear persecution, that you're going to be persecuted on the grounds of your race, your religion, your nationality, your political opinion, or because you're a member of a particular social group. So it has to be all the danger that's happening to you has to be because of one of those reasons. The most commonly used is particular social group. You can identify a particular social group, even though it hasn't been identified before, with every application. So um, 
what creates a particular social group is having a characteristic in common with other people, whether it be physical, um, an experience, a family tie, you know, uh, that creates a particular social group. It has to be socially visible and it has to be particularly distinct. So it's not just, oh, I'm a, I'm a business owner, you know, and they're attacking me because I'm a business owner. Yeah, that's a group and that's true. They're attacking a lot of business owners or extorting them, but that's too general. That hasn't been accepted, okay? Or I'm an 18 year old kid in Guatemala and the cartels or the, uh, the, the, the gangs, the, the, the Mala, the Trece, they're, they're, they're trying to recruit me. And if I say no, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna kill me. Right. Um, that's, that's too general. It's too, there's too many people, right? It has to be more specific than that. It has to be distinct. Somebody from, from the society has to be able to see you and say, okay, he's part of that group. Um, so those are the things, those particularities, that social distinction, those are things that this administration has narrowed down a lot where before it was a lot more broad. You could, you could include more things. Um, so I, I think those are things that make it weaker, not necessarily that your life is in danger. I think all business owners in Mexico, from what I hear, right, are being being ex, uh, extorted, extorted yeah. things like that. Um, and it's dangerous for them and it could be deadly for them, but unfortunately they don't qualify for asylum. Right. Before, I feel, I feel like the, it was easier to get asylum if you were you know, such as a business owner that, that, um, that had a business and was being extorted. I mean, I feel like I, I, I've met a lot of people in the past 10 years that have come, their families have come because they have money, they have businesses and that was happening. I mean, yeah. has that changed? Um, that, yes. With the asylum and the, I think asylum has gotten more and more narrow over the years with different interpretations and whatnot. Um, I don't think it's expanded. They're not. They're not saying okay, more groups are eligible. I think it's less groups are eligible. Um, individuals or families with that are able to um, financially, maybe yes, they initially came here because they were scared, um, or because they were being extorted or whatever. But they may have had another avenue to ultimately get legal status. Whether maybe it, maybe it was like an, a visa for investors, if they have enough money to open a business or something like that. Uh, they could have gotten uh, legal documentation that way. Right. I have a question from uh, Navia. Navia is a good friend of mine. She asked, uh, what legal advice do you have for applicants considering the recent changes? Looks like this is something that directly impacts uh, her life. So, Recent changes regarding... Applicants for what? Are they applying for residency or citizenship? Uh, I think she... Navi, if you're listening, go ahead and uh, comment again. But it looks like this was during the conversation in the beginning. So legal yeah. advice do you have for applicants considering the recent changes? I'm assuming it's applicants for residency. Okay. Um, applicants for residency. I mean... It's uh, it's difficult. These change the the major the, the biggest change that we've had is the the public charge rule and um, these applications need to be complete. If you leave anything blank on an application form, 
it gets sent back. Like even if it doesn't apply, you need to put doesn't apply or NA. If you leave one of those little squares blank, it, it, everything gets rejected. Um, the, I need a little more on that question because I need to know exactly, uh, not exactly, but what changes are they referring to? If it's, I have some of the documentation and not all of it, is there a way that you can get like let's say a credit score or, or a letter from a credit agency or one of the bureaus credit bureaus to say that you don't have any negative credit even with your name or date of birth or whatever i would try to get something like that just to complete it and and, and send that information um october 2nd a lot of the prices go up prices um, of of application applications yeah um like, like double for, triple uh, or like ridiculous amount of like the res the res the residency one doubles um from a thousand it almost doubles from like a, i think it's a thousand two hundred to uh twenty two twenty two hundred wow um everything's everything's going up it's 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 insane um and that 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 goes into effect on october second so my advice is if you can apply before then send it before then because then you're gonna have to pay more right is that normal i mean um, does you, that happen annual annually no, no. <laughs> there are some forms that haven't gone up since um, Clinton or Bush, um, but this guy's hiking everything up. Another tactic. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, I would, uh, if if there's any specific issues as far as like something that may that that she may think, or if anybody thinks they may be ineligible for at least consult with, with an attorney because uh, another thing that this administration is doing before when you would be denied, it would be any application or petition or anything like that, it would be denied without prejudice. So you wouldn't have the fear of if I'm denied, they're gonna send immigration or they're gonna refer me to go in front of an immigration judge. Denials now are going in front of an, you're getting served with a notice to appear in front of an immigration judge and now they're gonna try to remove you. So wow. uh, I would, uh, if there's anything as far as uh, like a crime or like a, a like uh, even like not non-serious criminal offense or arrest or whatever, um, I would recommend speaking to an immigration attorney and getting uh, their advice right. on that specifically. I have a question specific to potentially if you've ever dealt with a situation like this, but in, in a case where you have a client that has been in the United States for a set period of time, they have a permanent residency. Is that what it's called? Whenever they have that green card, permanent resident yes. card. And um, in turn, say they get a citation. Um, we won't say like a traffic citation, but we'll just say it's a citation, but it's not a violent citation. Um, not a violent you, citation? Not a violent citation. Are you seeing issues okay. with individuals that have, have gotten that to extend their permanent residency card when it comes time to renewal? They renew it what every ten what years, right? Uh, every ten years, yes. Um, a lot of the time, um, when we renew, or in my experiences, when I've renewed residencies, uh, even when they've had crimes that disqualify them, they typically get the residency card back. I've never had anybody denied that. It's a there's no interview for that nobody goes and asks you like you don't go anywhere to ask questions you go get your fingerprints taken 
and then they send you the residency card. I've had people with aggravated felonies who have gotten that. They have um, been denied. Not for the residency card. Um, and I don't know if any of them have actually gotten a referral to a judge either. Um, it, you are, I mean, you have to renew it right after 10 years right. that you have no choice because then you can't get a license or you can't, if you lose your social security card, you can't get any of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely putting the, putting yourself under their radar or on their radar. If you do have any, anything that, that disqualifies you right. personally with my clients, I've never had an issue with that. Um, I, I don't know what, I, I don't know what the reasoning behind that is. Um, I doubt it's luck. I think it's maybe that they, they're not really looking, looking for something like that when they, when you apply for that, if that person is trying to become a citizen, then it's different. They're going to go and they're going to do a deep dive into their criminal history. Um, and if they're ineligible, they'll, they're going to tell you you're ineligible. And also we're going to try to take your residency away. Right. I want to go back to the topic of the, um, you don't call them concentration camps. What do you call them again? Detention? Detention centers. Detention centers. On, at these detention centers, I've heard a lot of news. I, I've, I've spoken to people that have firsthand knowledge um, about sexual harassment cases there, specifically children that are being sexually harassed. Have you heard anything or do you have any clients, have you had any clients in the past where, where you've dealt with this directly? I have not dealt with it directly, thank God. Um, it's, uh, I think it's a terrible thing. I think El Paso had a bunch of complaints recently in one of the detention centers there. Um, as far as I know, there are a lot of allegations and I, I think there's uh, investigations going on. Um, but I, I, I don't have firsthand knowledge of that and I'm not too informed on it. I do know that every time I go into every detention center, it's a lot, a lot of posters about uh, whether you've been sexually violated in, in detention and uh, who to call and what numbers to contact and how to go about by making a complaint. Um, and I, we're talking overboard posters for these things. So um, it clearly happens quite often because you don't see posters of like, hey, there's water this way because people, uh, I guess that's not a problem. Uh, uh, so it has to be a, a pretty big problem. Were those posters there in the beginning or do you, you kind of see the jump in posters? After I, some I've time? always seen them there, yeah. I've always seen them there since I've been practicing here. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't I don't think I saw them much in the detention centers in Illinois when I worked there, but here yes. Right. Is there um is there any any specific issues that you want to come to public light on um in terms of how the Tarina law firm can help individuals um whether it's family that they have out there that is dealing with some type of immigration policy issue? or they're facing deportation? Um, I think for people who are in removal proceedings or people who get stopped by, by police and are referred to, are detained and they get an ice hold and ice, and, ice comes and pick them up. Um, a lot of people don't realize that they do have a lot of, that they, they do have rights and that they do have different forms of relief um, to, to removal and possibilities of staying in the United States. The statistics of people who go unrepresented in immigration proceedings is staggering. I think it's in the 80s. 80% 80 of people that go through these 
this process, these proceedings of being removed from the United States, this legal process are unrepresented. Why, why, um, why, do, why do they not seek representation? Is it a fear of cost or what is it? It, it could be a, a cost thing. Um, every time someone is detained, they are given a list of organizations that do pro bono work. Some of them qualify for it, some of them don't. Uh, immigration is not an area, is not a proceeding that you are afforded an, an attorney if you can't afford one. Um, unlike criminal where they tell you if you can't afford an attorney, one will be, you will be assigned one. Immigration, right. they, they, that's not a thing. Um, so, and, and a lot of people just don't want to be detained and I get it. I've never, I've, I've never been detained for, for, for a long period of time. And I can't imagine what it's like to be in there for a long time and not knowing what my possibilities are, what my options are with, what, what the probability is of me being, even being able to stay. Um, so a lot of them just go to the first time they go in front of the judge. They say, I want to volu- I want to leave. I want a voluntary, t- voluntary departure. I want a deportation. And once they leave, they are they disqualify themselves basically if they uh, from any defenses that they would have qualified for if they qualified for anything. It's been my experience that a lot of people do qualify, that just don't. I'll I'll give you an example. I have a client. Um, we had a hearing on Monday, and it's a he's cancellation of removal, meaning that he's been here. He's been in the country since he was two months old back in 1988. He has a wife, he has four kids who are US citizens. Um, he was detained because he was, there was a taillight on his truck that was off, that was broken. He got pulled over, they called border patrol. He was detained and ICE picked him up, took him in, the, took him in custody. Um, he has been detained since about July 4th um, and he's getting frustrated and he wants out. So. We went to court on Monday. I submitted my application for relief for the cancellation of removal, and the judge was going to set us for for our trial date. Um, my client is also waiting for a bond hearing. He has some arrests that I need to get that they've all been dismissed, and I just need to show proof that they've been dismissed. And because of COVID and different offices around the country are not open. This one is Laredo, the district attorney in Laredo. I think they're like on some sort of rotating schedule where they go into work one day a week. Um, so it's taken a long time to get this documentation. I finally got it. We're set for it for the bond. The bond is set for um, September 9th. The judge gave us a date of September 21st for the hearing itself. And my client, frustrated, just raises his hand. I can't see any of this because I'm on the telephone. And the judge says, your client is raising his hand. It looks like he wants to say something. Can I address him? I say yes. And he says, I want my voluntary departure. I cannot be here anymore. I I, I, I want to ask for voluntary departure. And then he, thankfully, the judge gave me time to talk to him. And I had to calm him down and say, hey, we still have this bond hearing. But he's about to throw his life away. Right. He's about to throw any sort of... Um, opportunity he had to remain in this country. And he has a really strong case to stay here. He has a really strong cancellation case. Um, and that's somebody who's represented. Imagine somebody who's not represented that can't, that doesn't have anybody right, talking to consult with at that moment. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. So that's one of the biggest things. If you, or if you know anybody else who is at, 
is detained or is going through this, it's a very scary thing. At least go talk to an attorney. Some attorneys don't charge for consultations. And even if it's just a consultation, just to get, you know, just to learn about the process so you don't go into it blind, I think is important. Um, I think it's important if you also, if you're eligible for something, if you're married to somebody or if uh, you're child is a citizen and they can apply for you and you have a way to get some legal status, do it. Don't wait, don't say, I'm gonna wait for my next, for my next income tax return to pay for this, which is a big thing that people do. As we've learned from this administration, it just gets harder and harder and harder. And you, if you wait too long, you may eliminate, you may disqualify yourself from being able to do something. So um, it's, it's important that if you're able to, you do it. Right. It's, uh, does the uh, Trevino law firm charge for first-time um, consult consults? We do. Uh, we charge fifty dollars. Um, we when somebody and and, and it, we rarely take walk-ins. Sometimes there's an emergency situation where somebody was picked up and and whatnot, and we will we'll take those. Uh, but when somebody calls to make an appointment, we'll send them over a uh, intake to get a detailed account of what they're looking for and information on them. Uh, so when they come in and we meet, uh, we're fully prepared and we I've done my due diligence to figure out if there's anything that can be done, what can be done, and, and we go from there. So it's uh, we meet for a good while when we when we do these consultations and that it's not just you talk to an assistant and they let you know whatever. It's uh, they, they either talk to me or with Melanie uh, and we give them a full rundown on what the law is and what they're able are capable of doing. Right. Right. Any uh, any last remarks that you that you'd like to make, um, Jorge? No, just uh, do what you can to get legal status. Uh, if you're a resident, apply for citizenship. If you are a citizen, vote, 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 and get everybody you know that can vote to vote. Um, I I. I I never thought I'd be one of those people that are going to be like, go vote, go vote. Like I always voted, but it's uh, this, I've never, I'm not that old, I'm only 38, but I've never seen such a direct impact on the livelihood of a country um, by one person than I have in these last four years. And I think it's important for the betterment of our country. I agree. I know that it has nothing to do with immigration. Partly does because he affects a lot of immigration, uh, but it's, it's so important. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's it's definitely a uh, a weird time, and I think it's only going to get worse if we don't make some type of uh, some type of shift in the boat. Um, yeah, I think it's very important. Well, Jorge, I want to I want to thank you for coming on the podcast again today, for taking the time out of your day. I know you're very busy to uh, come on and explain to us and answer some questions that, that we've had from some, from some guests. And uh, I hope to be back on uh, soon. Awesome. Anytime. All righty, Jorge. Have a good day. Thanks again. You too. Thank you. All righty. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. That was episode 11 with Jorge Trevino of the Trevino Law Firm. If you haven't liked our um post yet hit the like button if you haven't subscribed to our youtube go ahead and subscribe to the youtube and share this uh share this actual episode if you have a chance even though it's already played you could still share it 
to uh to give others the knowledge that um that we've had we have discussed and we've put out there on this episode uh thanks for watching and we'll see you guys on the next show